Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Vigilant Geek Podcast. I am Andrew Puzak of Vigilant Geek Media and with me as always is Holden Orm of Vigilant Geek Media. Andrew, this is a very big episode today. Uh, yeah, this week, uh, we are discussing, uh, indie books and, uh, the local, uh, indie community, uh, in regards to the graphic novel medium. Uh, so, you know, as we operate out of Boston, Mass, uh, uh, the books that we will be covering today, uh, are pretty much, uh, um, from creators around the area. Um, but yeah, we want to, uh, take these, uh, particularly, uh, amazing, uh, publications that are out there, uh, and, and provide as much exposure as we can, really get them out there, uh, to the people and, uh, get folks reading some of these great, uh, graphic novels. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of great local stuff. Um, you gotta sort through some of it a lot of times. I know it's, uh, hard sometimes to part ways with some cash on, uh, something that isn't quite unproven. So hopefully if we can go ahead and shine some light on some of the books that are actually really good, um, it'll make it easier to per- for someone to purchase something that is actually highly quality. Uh, we recommend all the books that we're going to talk about today. And, um, you know, we've come to appreciate all, all these books because simply, there, a lot of people took a lot of time and energy and independently created these books themselves, and without the help of a big publishing company and everything else. And it can be extremely yeah. time-consuming, but a lot of them are creator-owned. Uh, almost all of them. I almost all of them. Yeah. And um, and with with all these books, and they put a lot of time and effort into it, and um, I think they should uh, deserve to get some exposure. So. So that's, you know, part of what we're here for, uh, uh, at Vigilant Geek Media. Um, we want to take, uh, take these, these, uh, excellent publications that are out there and, and, uh, provide a, a voice, uh, and a hub of information to get them out there to the readers, uh, and also to assist you, uh, in finding where to purchase these books, if you so choose. Uh, so with that, uh, we got a long list to cover today, and uh, it would probably behoove of us uh, to jump right into it with uh, the first indie publication that I'd like to talk about, uh, Holden and I are going to talk about. Uh, now, this, this book, uh, this series, uh, it actually won the inaugural Vigilant Geek Awards for 2014 last year. It won for uh, Best Independent Graphic Novel. Uh, and that is the Roadhouse Sons Dangerous Gambles. Uh, is a three-book, three-part series uh, based off of Jason Sanderson's uh, novels. Uh, uh, first novel of the Roadhouse series, also entitled uh, Dangerous Gambles. And the graphic novels are going to continue to follow suit with the books written by Jason Sanderson. Uh, he's a pretty amazing and interesting guy. Uh, I've had the privilege of talking to him a couple of times. Um and, uh, you know, he's a former pro wrestler. Um, he's also become the tour manager of the band Studebaker Hawk, uh, for which uh, the Roadhouse Sons are based off of. Uh, 
um, which is pretty neat. Um, now, in, besides uh, Mr. Sanderson, there's also a, a large crew, uh, a, a creative team that works on this book. Uh, Allison Barrows uh, uh, writes it and, and also draws layouts, and uh, Romas uh, illustrates it um, and does uh, covers and things like that. And then uh, uh, Allison's uh, daughter, Allison and Romas's daughter, uh, uh, her name escapes me at the moment, but she does the coloring. Um, and the whole thing's produced by, uh, Mia Moravis, uh, who's, who's just, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of, of, uh, meeting with her and talking with her, uh, in previous, uh, reviews of the books. And, uh, she is, uh, just a wonderful person to, to, to talk to and work with. So, um, you know, in regards to the premise of the book, it, it's it, it's a really cool, fresh, interesting new premise uh, that that you know hasn't really been attempted either in mainstream comics or uh, the indie club. Uh, but basically, you have a uh, you have a situation where the Cold War uh, turns hot. So we're talking back in Cold War times, uh, you know. So let's say the Cold War actually occurred. Yeah, like. Uh I think early to mid seventies, right? Uh yeah, yeah, it should be right around there. So, um, you know, and the the society's dealing with a lot of different things, such as uh, government rationing of certain uh, different commodities uh, that are, you know, vital to everyday life. Things like gasoline and coffee and food, food and and all sorts of of, of things like that. Uh, alcohol, uh, you name it. So. Um, that's sort of, you know, the picture that's being painted, um, very grim, but you have this band, uh, they're sort of a, a dive bar band, but they, uh, they play a lot of classic rock hits and stuff like that, and, uh, since they have, uh, been playing shows where they've been, uh, intermingling with, uh, uh, the drug crowd, so to speak, uh, the government goes and, uh, basically recruits them as uh as you know undercover agents yeah uh they get uh they get blackmailed they yeah, get pulled they get over on the side it. of the road yeah. and uh they say that a uh, club owner that they that tried to screw them out of some cash that they ended up robbing you know, a bunch of ration cards because they got extras and they isolate each of the band and they're like all right well we're gonna give you an option like you can work for us or you like you're going to jail and uh where it goes from there is uh they end up taking the deal because they don't really have much of a choice but because of this they end up getting government training and then the government ends up secretly funding their operations so now they're allowed to play bigger shows um they're allowed access to better rationing like real eggs and and real booze, none of that knockoff government booze. And, uh, and then they stick them through training, they teach them how to go ahead and, and spot people, how to do certain surveillance, uh, teach them how to go ahead and notice things immediately in a room, um, just, uh, real, you know, undercover spy stuff. Yeah, so, um, you know, then they, they take it to uh to the field you know the 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 band now that it has all the 
government funding that it didn't have before has taken off and uh with their fame uh comes bigger shows and with bigger shows comes bigger trouble uh they actually end up intermingling with some uh some communist operatives uh who uh, at first, uh, seem friendly. Well, some of them seem friendly and some of them are, give, give themselves away right off the bat. But, um, particularly one, uh, this, this girl named Bambi, uh, ends up, uh, getting real close and personal with the front man of the band, Cameron Walsh. Uh, so you have something there where, you know, his heart is being swayed by this woman and she's finding out information about them through their relationship and vice versa and things come to an end uh later on when they play this big show and uh the uh the communist operatives end up uh, uh kidnapping the band and uh uh you know threatening to blow them up blow up the building they're in and uh you know from there they get they do get away uh although uh the band's roadie Doug uh was presumed dead cuz he went back uh in the fire uh during the after the explosion to uh get another bandmate uh Clyde Poolin uh who was trapped um however at the end uh, of of dangerous gambles we we do see Doug's hat uh on the television set um with an orange oh, which was sorry. used as a plot device earlier in the book as uh some something to look for as a sign when they're staking out things to find secret contacts right and and um what I what I actually meant there was the the hat is the hat was placed there as a shrine to to Doug um, when in fact uh, the hat had been uh, taken away and replaced with the orange, giving readers uh, the hope that Doug is in fact still alive. Yeah. So, uh, sorry about that little mix-up there, but very interesting read, very cool concept. Um, uh, it's fresh, art- it's new, it's raw. Uh, yes, the art you were the saying. Art, the art was fantastic. Uh, the coloring's fantastic. The premise is, uh, I mean, I haven't really even heard anything like this in, in other story mediums. I really haven't seen it in TV. I really haven't seen it in movies. Um, it's a really good concept they got going here, and I'm looking forward to really reading more of the, of the series. Same here. Um, now, uh, Volume 1, Part 1 of Renegade was just brought to the graphic novel medium. It just came out uh, for Boston Comic Con this past summer. Um, and we've both had a chance to rifle through that. Very, go- very cool stuff. Um, it follows suit after Dangerous Gambles very nicely. Uh, yeah, it does, uh, does a great job. Uh, New Arc starts them off in uh, dealing with the grinds of being a band. Uh, currently, they're trying to book shows in the, in the Midwest, and they're trying to get them on a USO tour, but they can't get there until they get to a certain town. And so in the meantime, they're investigating uh, local local clubs because vigilante gangs have been popping up in the area. So uh, their manager, who's also a former Green Beret and a government spook, is uh, having them go ahead and look into all these things. 
And, uh, and then, uh, the first book really just develops the investigation at, uh, the way things look now. It's, uh, the, uh, local town banker who's trying to guilt trip everyone to buying, uh, war bonds is, is the one trying to rough up people in the area and trying to get young men to go enlist and everything else, just really pressuring the community and just uh, running like a racket on everybody. So uh, the way things are looking, um, it seems like they uh, they got something good again, and uh, just waiting for part two to come out. Yeah, uh, we'll be uh, keeping you all in tune with uh, the comings and goings of the Roadhouse Sons books uh, in the future, and we look forward to uh, reading the rest of Renegade. Uh, so, um, so if you're interested in uh, in picking this book up, do we have? Uh... Yeah, you just want to go to Roadhouse Sons, uh, all lowercase dot com. That's Roadhouse Sons dot com. And uh, they have all the books and graphic novels for sale uh, on site there. So, all right, uh, moving, yeah, uh, absolutely, moving right along. Uh, another uh, very uh, popular, very excellent indie title uh, worth discussing is uh, "Return to Rander." Now, uh, "Return to Rander" is also uh, an vigilant geek. Award winner for 2014, uh, Return to Rander won Best Story Arc, Best Independent Story Arc, uh, for 2014. Uh, I just, I just really liked this story. I mean, uh, it's, uh, written and drawn by Tony Sedani, uh, who's a great guy. Uh, Holden and I caught up with him at this past year's con, and I've seen him at a few other cons too. Um, now, uh, he just finished uh, wrapping up uh, the first story arc for a return to Rander called The Lone Savior, uh, and it is now in trade paperback if you want to just get the whole thing and read it at once. Uh, I read it issue by issue, but... Yeah, I picked up the trade over the uh, over at the con. It's got a lot of great extras in there, a lot of uh, one-page single-off stories that give you uh, more of a look into the world of Return to Rander. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I, I remember coming across uh, Tony Sedani. He actually drew a map of, uh, you know, sort of the realm he created. Uh, it was pretty neat. Yeah, the five points. The five points, yeah. That's that's sort of the, the big realm that he created for uh, the Return to Rander story. So, um, basically, uh, the Lone Savior starts out uh, and... You have these two two brothers, the Rapture brothers, and and you don't you don't know that at first. All you really know is there's this this guy who clearly uh, got amnesia in some way, shape, or form, and he's wandering he's wandering the desert, and uh, basically he's looking for his home, which is Rander. Uh, and throughout the course of his journey. He is being tracked by uh, one of the coolest villains that I have come across, uh, definitely in the independent comics community and surely even in, in, in mainstream comics as a whole. Uh, the Matador uh, is just a fantastic, uh, evil, calculated villain, and he's just perfect for this story. Um, and he's, you don't really know why, but he's, he's searching for... Uh, 
the hero of the story who's lost at, at this point. Um, so you have him sort of tailing him the whole time. Uh, you know, he, he comes across an inn uh, during his travels uh, where he meets a pregnant innkeeper uh, along with a man named Mr. Ford who, you know, he's there for protection, but he's kind of a you know, he's kind of a bastard. Yeah, he's kind of, he's kind of like a real low-level gangster. He's just, he exists in the town as a parasite, kind of living like an organized crime guy. Like, oh, well, I'm here for your protection. But really, he's just extorting money out of everyone in the neighborhood. Exactly. So you have you have one of those characters in the mix. Um, basically, uh, our hero, uh, he stops Ford from killing the innkeeper uh, over money. Um, so basically, you know, he pick, he picks her up, and now she's sort of along for the adventure. The adventure, and, and, and uh, you know, she still has, you know, a child in womb. So that makes things interesting. Um, however, uh, it's funny how these uh, certain uh, characters of uh, a lesser moral compass seem to, to gravitate towards each other because, uh, sure enough, uh, shortly after the Matador enlists the aid of Mister Ford. Uh, the bastard from the in, you know, the in scene, uh, and, and, and six him on, uh, the hero, uh, so now, you know, two's stronger than one, you get a couple of guys after, uh, after our main hero there, so, um, you know, the story goes on, and, uh, it's a, it's a classic tale done in the, um, done in the form, it, has the feel of uh, an old samurai tale on top of a spaghetti western. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then uh, I mean, and it doesn't harsh up on the grizzled death too. The matador just leaves bodies in his wake, just tortures people, just cold, calculated, no conscience. Like does whatever he has to do to get what he wants, and what he wants is to find his brother, and and um, his brother doesn't really know who he is, and then. Just eventually, you get this final confrontation, which is just this epic moment where the two end up coming face to face, and the matador is like, "Oh, I found you. Now we can go like find everything." And he's like, and the other guy is like, "Like I don't know who I was, but like I'm not like you. You keep killing all these people to find me. Like what's wrong with you?" And yeah, exactly. So eventually he's like, well, you're going to come with me one way or the other. And he's like, I'm not going anywhere with you. So they end up having this big fight, this all-out brawl, blood spilled everywhere. Um, our lone savior ends up uh, winning out. And at the end of that, um, circumstances uh, find out he was going to catch a ship to Rander, but there was a storm, and he ends up finally getting on the boat and then leaving but this leaves a lot the story open for for another sequel which i do believe tony was saying that he was uh working on a follow-up yeah uh well um he's continuing with the return to Rander's story and there will be a, a follow-up arc uh is uh, you know obviously uh the lone savior as as i actually like calling him that uh but the hero of the story has not found Rander yet. Uh, you know, he's on the ship with the baby at the end. Uh, but he hasn't found Rander. Uh, so there's certainly, uh, more of the tale to be told. 
and uh, we can't wait for Tony to keep telling it. So, uh, um, once again, uh, if you want to get a hold of some Return to Rander books, visit returntorander.com, and uh, they're all for sale on that site. Now, uh, one more uh, Return to Rander-related uh, story that I'd just like to touch upon here uh, before we move on is this little uh, Return to Rander tale that uh, Tony was giving out at the con, a uh, little uh, book that he uh, wrote called The Red Edge Ghost. And this was a tale pertaining solely to uh, Sheriff Blaine, uh, who's a, actually a, another big character in The Lone Savior, uh, although we didn't, we didn't touch upon him, uh, yet. Uh, basically, you know, he, uh, is investigating, uh, the murders going on by the Matador, so he's on the, on the trail of the Matador, uh, throughout, uh, the four issues of The Lone Savior, and then this, uh, The Red Edge Ghost is sort of, uh, a chance for readers to get to know a little bit more about, about Blaine himself, what kind of a man he is, uh, what he, what he stands for, and, uh, you know, uh, just a little bit more character development there. Uh, basically, uh, the Red Edge is a place that Blaine visits every year. Uh, it's a place where apparently it seems that his family was murdered or killed. Uh, but he's talking to his family, his dead family, uh, throughout the course of being there at Red Edge. Uh, as well as, uh, he mentions a man named Munoz, uh, and how he hopes every year that Munoz, uh, shows up and greets him. Well, he goes into the decrepit old house and he, uh, notices that there's a woman tied up. And, uh, you know, I imagine that that woman was not living there uh it looks like an old decrepit house maybe blaine's old house from back years ago but either way there's a killer there uh and he's about to kill the woman that's tied up and blaine uh thwarts him uh but then they they reach a standoff where uh you know the killer has the knife and uh blaine has uh no more bullets left. Basically, uh, something shoots the killer, and lo and behold, it it was Munoz, and he doesn't really know if it was Munoz in his last dying breath, taking one last shot, or if it was his ghost. But apparently, the woman told him that uh, his throat had been slit prior uh, to uh, Blaine getting there. Either way, uh, the cool part that sort of wraps up this little tale is that uh, Blaine sort of decides to put the whiskey down and says, you know, well, I, you know, someone else has spilled their blood again uh, in lieu of me. Uh, I'm clearly meant to be alive right now for a reason. So basically, you know, the whiskey's going down. He pours the rest of the whiskey out. uh over his family's graves and, and, and says, you know, I've got five points to protect. Like, here I come, kind of. Which makes me think he's going to have a big role in the second arc, too. Which is cool. It leaves you a little something more to uh, 
to sit and resonate while you're waiting for uh, the next arc to come out. So good stuff there from uh, Mr. Tony Sedani. Yeah, he really developed a very rich world with a lot of very uh, in-depth characters. Um, and and he's got a lot a lot of good things to build on going towards the next arc. Oh, absolutely. We'll be waiting with bated breath. So, uh, looks like moving right along, the next title that we want to bring to your attention out there is probably the best space opera you will find in independent comics. It's a bold statement, but it is true. Uh, and this title is Runners by Sean Wang. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, Runners is a spa- space opera. It's about, uh, a, a group of smugglers. Um, we have uh, some main characters. The captain, Roka. Um, his first mate, Rilmar. Um, Sembra Koji. Ben Isad. Bachi. And then later on, Sky joins up. This is his crew. Um, Sembra and Ben Isad were former pirates. So they're, they're helping with the smuggling operation. And... Uh, the first book starts off, and uh, the crew is um, supposed to meet up with another ship to uh, get their cargo and then deliver it to their boss, who is a big crime boss in the galaxy. Um, they go. It turns out it was attacked by a local pirate named, I think it's Handsome Dan. I'm not completely sure. Yeah, that sounds wicked familiar. I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't want to make sure I'm not getting it confused with that Wayne's World 2 character. Who was like the DJ? Like that was handsome Dan too. Anyways, um, so they go, they get it into them, they kick the pirates' ass. They end up leaving. They find this young um, woman covered in this uh, liquid. Yeah, on the floor. (laughs) It's like the goo from the gack from Nickelodeon. So um, they go. She doesn't know who she is. So. They're going on their merry way. They find a place to go repair themselves. Then it turns out they get back out. All of a sudden, because of the cargo that they that they uh, retrieved from the vessel that they met up with, um, it turns out that uh, somebody has put an enormous bounty on the ship and everyone in the crew. So they're trying to sneak through space without getting attacked because everyone's looking for them. And they go to this place to get their ship fixed up because they got ambushed and... Um, you meet some of the characters and they end up getting into the situation where they have to try to escape the city and they barely escape. Um, a lot of the storytelling is kind of, it gives me, you know, makes me reminiscent for, um, for a lot of the situations that the Star Wars characters have kind of gotten into. Oh yeah. Like they get into a against all odds type of situation, but somehow they end up overcoming as if for luck. And skill and everything just had to go their way, and then it's kind of seems impossible, but then it does. Um, Sean also does an amazing job writing the banter uh, and the way with the relationships that the crew has with each other. Um, that's pretty amazing. Uh, the artwork's great, um, and it's just it gives you this. It really sets the mood when you're reading the book. Um, and the, that was just the first book. They also have uh, another one out called uh, Book Two, which is the Snow Job. Um, I believe I forget the name of the first book, but if you want to look it up yourself, you can find it at 
www.runnersuniverse.com, one word. Um, and he also has his other website, www.shanwang.com. But in uh, in the second book, it's another tale. Um, one of the characters, Bachi, ended up getting hurt in the first one, so he ends up having to stay with the ship. And they ended up getting fired. Well, not fired, but um, let go by the crime boss that they were working for before because things just got too hairy and he didn't want to use them because they were getting too well-known. So they end up doing odd jobs around the galaxy, and they end up doing another one where they're going to steal these cattle for another crime boss, and it turns out that uh, it was they belong to another crime boss, and he was using the stomachs of these cattle to smuggle drugs, and the natives of the planet were getting real sick off the drugs, and they end up getting captured, and they end up in another fight, and then it turns out that Ben Assad actually worked for the crime boss who was trying to smuggle the drugs in the stomachs of these other uh, these cattle, and they end up having to make a moral choice because... The crew is kind of hurting for cash and everything else, and and then uh, and then it comes to a resolution where they end up saving the townspeople, but they end up getting kind of screwed over because they don't get paid. And um, I mean, and then it also kind of towards the end adds along a, of like a bigger storyline where it turns out that these crime bosses are actually trying to uh, this one. Crime boss, the one that they worked for before, is actually trying to go ahead and set up a gang war to try to get a position of like one of the top five crime bosses in the galaxy. And once again, really well done. Also, book two is great because it's actually colored. Um, the first book was in black and white. Um, really looking forward to all this. Uh, looking forward to another for another book. Um, so. Oh, yeah. I, I love how, uh, Sean Wang, uh, you know, in, in a lot of space operas, you, like, you see your Star Treks and your Star Wars, your Battlestar Galactica, or what have you, and humans really seem to be the center of attention, uh, in regards to those space operas, where in Runners, it's totally, like, Pretty much all about ex- different extraterrestrials in the galaxy, and it's it's cool to think about, you know, because I mean they're out there. Let's face it. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to beat around the bush, uh, and it's cool to think about. And he does a great job uh, of conveying that, and conveying, you know, you talked about the dialogue, uh, the banter between the different characters, and uh, all of that adds a bit of uh, fun and a bit of uh, realism to the story. It's just, uh, it's very well written. It's very well drawn. Uh, it's just, uh, if you're looking for a space opera, that's the one you want to read, uh, you know, in, in the indie community for sure. You want to, you want to read runners. It's good stuff. So, moving right along from that, uh, another very interesting title, uh, that I just want to touch upon, uh, is actually this book inspired by, uh, the music of Inspector Deck from the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, this title is called Zarface, uh, spelled C-Z-A-R, face, uh, such as, a, a, you know, a, a Russian czar of some sort. Um, either way, uh, it's uh, a very uh, unique tale about a big, mean, metal Zarface, and uh 
you know, he, uh, he doesn't like bullies and, uh, he ends up actually, uh, disintegrating a few of those, uh, for picking on, uh, one of the kids and, and, and getting his name wrong. Uh, he doesn't like when people mispronounce Zarface. So he disintegrates them. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the bulk of the story revolves around, uh, Zarface, uh, meeting up with an old foe, Dr. Yorgo, and some of his lackeys, and uh, we're not quite sure exactly why they're fighting again, but uh, they're arch-enemies, and Zarface really, you know, he really takes it to him, makes him seem like junior varsity out there, uh, even though they got these, like, new high-tech suits that Dr. Yorgo invented, it doesn't do him much good. Um, and, and luckily, uh, you know, the story comes full circle and at the end, uh, you get to see Zarface actually, uh, make a bit of a profit off the day's, uh, good deeds and sell, uh, some of the nice expensive polo clothes that the, uh, the bullies were wearing earlier. He sells those on eBay and, uh, makes a little money for himself. So, uh, <laughs> you know, um, the artwork's really cool. It's, it's set to look like, you know, a little vintage, which I like. Like, sort of like some of how the old art was back in, you know, the days of, uh, you know, the golden ages of different books. Um, the, the ads, the, the old school advertisements throughout the book are, are highly entertaining. Uh, you'll have to, of course, pick the book up for yourself. I, you know, I don't feel the need to give away, uh, the hilarious ads that are in the book, but, um, this whole Zarface uh, endeavor was based off of uh, an album entitled Zarface uh, by Inspector Deck. And you can pick that album up as well as the first two issues of Zarface at www.zarface.com. Um, also, if I didn't mention it before, uh, a man named Esoteric uh, wrote in... in and uh came up with the idea for uh uh basically transforming Zarface into a comic book. Uh pencils and inks were done by uh Gelberto Aguirre Mata uh and letters and colors were done by uh Emilio Aguirre Mata. Uh so lots of fun stuff there. Alright. Nice. I guess uh moving right along um, we have, uh, the books done from the Homeless Comics line. Ah, yes. Homeless Comics, uh, are actually, um, some of my favorite titles have come out from them, uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, it's, it's run by a man named George O'Connor. Uh, he's a great guy. We've, uh, had the privilege of picking his brain about a lot of different industry type, uh, uh, questions and, and concerns and things and, uh, uh, he's, uh, owner and operator, Homeless Comics, and he's also written, uh, a few real interesting titles, uh, that we'll discuss as well. And, uh, an artist by the name of Griffin S, uh, actually works with George on all of his, uh, publications and, uh, he's a fantastic artist as well. Uh, 
they're just a good group of guys and they got some great stuff. Uh, I guess the first publication of theirs that I would like to bring to everyone's attention would be Healed. Yeah. Healed's really got a great premise. Um, with all the zombie and undead books and just zombie media, just people are all up in your face. Zombies are in right now. Um, here comes a story. Oh, what if not everyone became undead? What if everyone overnight became healed? What if everyone could no longer get sick? Like, what kind of issues would the world face? Um, and that's what Healed really delves into. It, uh, it goes through a lot of short stories talking about, uh, different characters in different situations where the world's just kind of lost their mind because overnight, a lot of people who are just sick or, or broken were overnight and just found themselves, found themselves healed. A lot of people who, um, who just had these debilitating cancers and, and, and like cirrhosis of the liver, people getting ready to people in hospice care all of a sudden they uh all these mentals everything and then uh and then they're fixed. Um like um say people who were in um nursing homes, say you had multiple sclerosis, couldn't walk and you could walk again. You had to go home with your family and uh people with Alzheimer's who couldn't remember anything. And then, and then it also brings up other ideas like, well, well, if no one's really dying anymore from sickness or anything, like, what are we gonna do? Like, there's gonna be a lot more people. Like, what are we gonna, how are we, how are we going to feed all these people? And, um, and then in other questions brought into, uh, and a lot, a lot of different situations, like what uh, what are the pharmaceutical companies going to do with themselves yeah. now? Oh yeah, that's another huge part, uh, huge scenario that George explores. Yeah, and in, it's a really interesting idea. It hasn't really been taken on by anyone before. Um, and then, and it re- really, what it does is it just kind of makes you take a look at like the human experience, and like, and it's a real emotional what if story. Because it puts you through all these scenarios and makes you think about all these different things that would happen if overnight everything was healed. And for a lot of people, it would be a great thing. But for a lot of people, it would also be extremely terrifying. And it would also be quite a terrible thing as well. And it, uh, it touches on all those, all those, uh, points. Yeah. It touches on them masterfully, I believe, you know, uh, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the, how the pharmaceutical company, the, I love the pharmaceutical lady, uh, sort of like the evil character he creates in her and how she's freaking out cause, uh, you know, no one needs, you know, pharmaceuticals anymore and, uh, you know, that whole industry's going under. No, yeah. what, she, are, what are they gonna do to try to, you know. And puts all her research into seeing if like there are any freak people just getting sick randomly. Or if, like, people are still getting, like, finding what other health problems still, like, kind of maybe exist. And uh, then you got the the whole religious aspect that they explore in the beginning of the book, too, with the the preacher and, and everybody's calling bullshit on him because no one's dying anymore. And, like, well, no, well, they're all in there and they all have faith. But the, let's see, what is it? The preacher has a nervous breakdown and is like, I'm going to make sure everyone goes to heaven oh, because yeah. you can't die naturally anymore. Like, there's no point in doing the right thing anymore. And he takes out this 
this uh, remote detonator and he blows up everybody in the church. Which is uh, kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tad grim, I suppose. But yeah, uh, now Healed was a great, great publication. Uh, to, it, I highly recommend picking it up. Uh, it's uh, the ultimate what if scenario uh, out there in the indie comics community. So. <clears throat> Uh, right along with Healed, another title uh, Homeless Comics has out there right now is called Baby. Uh, this is a fun story about a baby sea monster uh, who surfaces on the Jersey Shore. And uh, it's really just a big misunderstanding. Uh, the, ba- uh, the baby sea monster, Baby, uh, basically just uh, has lost his mom and is trying to find its mom. But, you know, as it surfaces on land and starts walking around, uh, things are getting destroyed. Uh, so then there's three other very important characters that you want to know about. Uh, you got the uh, cryptozoologist, Dr. Trent Headley, uh, who's basically a big prima donna, um, and he's wants to use this opportunity of finding this uh, new creature uh, that came from the ocean. He wants to, to try to get himself rich and famous from that. Uh, so as you'll see throughout the course of the story, uh, he does things like endangers, you know, a, a, a toddler uh, because uh, the baby sea monster tends to, uh, takes a liking to, to the toddler and he uses uh, a lollipop to try to coax the, the baby sea monster into captivity with using, you know, putting the, the toddler in danger throughout the whole time. Uh, then, you know, in, in issue three that just came out, uh, uh, at Boston Comic Con, actually, it just it just arrived to us uh, uh, this past summer. Um, you really start to see uh, Doctor Trent Headley uh, really expose his true colors, as you know, he's clearly a lot more concerned about how he looks on camera uh, when giving his speech, as opposed to how miserable the monster looks uh, in the background, in the tank behind him, so much so that uh, the press is actually wondering, like, hey, what's wrong with that monster? Like, it doesn't look happy, doesn't look healthy. Like, can you tell us what you've been feeding it? You know, anything like that. And, uh, you know, of course he hasn't, he hasn't given the monster any thought at all. He's just concerned about his, his 15 minutes of fame. Uh, so we have a situation, you know, at the end of, of issue three where you have, um, you know, the baby monster in captivity and, and it clearly doesn't, you know, not having a good time, doesn't want to be there, probably hasn't eaten and, uh, there's nobody really looking after it at this stage of the game. Now, uh, another character that you just want to be aware of too in that story is, uh, the police detective, uh, Frank, who, uh, is retiring in a day. Um, so during the whole nonsense, the whole, uh, mayhem and chaos with the, with, uh, the baby monster walking around the city, he's hiding in the evidence, lo- uh, locker because he doesn't want to deal with it on his last day on the job. 
Uh, and eventually, you know, throughout uh, the course of the story, uh, he starts to realize sort of what a coward he's being and uh, makes his way out to the scene. Uh, not in time to really do anything, but so far uh, he's at least gotten himself out of the evidence locker, which is, you know, a big... Uh, a big step for a man like that. So, <laughs> uh, very, uh, fun book to read. Uh, the artwork's great. Griffin S. once again on the artwork there. Uh, and it, it'll be interesting to see, uh, in issue four, the conclusion of Baby. Uh, what happens to Baby if the police detective plays any role in, uh, saving Baby from his current captivity? Uh, these are all uh, interesting questions, and we can't wait for issue four to come out uh, to maybe answer them. So uh, lots of good stuff coming from Homeless Comics. Uh, so once again, uh, if you're looking to shop around at Homeless Comics, pick up a copy of Heels, maybe a copy of Baby. Uh, you just want to go to homelesscomics.com. Uh, or you can hit their Twitter, uh, at Homeless Comics, and uh, get all their good stuff there. Yes, yes, yes. Hey, while you're at the con, didn't you pick up a book called Two Redheads and a Dead Blonde? It's one of those crime noir stories. It was definitely up your alley. I, I certainly did, Holden. Um, you know, uh, I've actually been following that book uh, for a little while now. Uh Issues one and two came out uh, a few years ago, but um, they did, uh, Lloyd Caraselli, uh, who's the writer of the novel and also the graphic novel, uh, which is published by Sky Cop Studios. Um, he was there uh, with uh, issues three and four uh, of the six-part series, uh, two redheads and a dead blonde. So. Um, I thought this book was really cool because you don't see a hell of a lot of uh, crime noir uh, in the indie scene. Uh, and, and this particular story uh, was just really gripping from the get-go. Uh, so you have uh, a character named Ronan Marino. He's the main character. Uh, uh, he's an ex-cop, uh, or actually he's uh, an ex-Air uh, Force uh but he's retired, um, and he sort of just wants to settle down, and, and uh, you know, he's into, like, comic books and playing guitar, and he just wants to focus on his hobbies and hanging out, you know, now that he's retired from the military life. Um, this is all set in Lowell, Mass., by the way, um, which is cool, because you see a lot of... Uh, uh, different landmarks, uh, in the Boston area and in, in, in the panels. If, if you're from the area, you can, you can notice some of the areas, you know, like he does, uh, uh, well, Alex Cormick is actually the artist that draws the panels. Um, but they, um, they've incorporated like a lot of scenes from like, you know, uh, the Boston's North End and different areas around Lowell and it, it's really cool. So it's, you know, it's got some hometown, uh, flavor there going on. But basically, um, everything's, you know, all well and good for Ronan until uh, this girl he meets, Karen, was murdered. Uh, he takes a, a liking to Karen so much so that she ends up being his girlfriend. Uh, but she gets murdered, which sort of presses, you know, the, 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 the trigger 
for Ronan to get called back to action. And he used to investigate crimes in the military. So he has that detective background, which uh, he uses to try to solve this crime. It's basically uh, the rest of the story is him going in deep and trying to fish out who the murderer is. And this takes him through all sorts of different uh, types of trouble. Um, you know, everything from your basic barroom thugs to the mob. Uh, and Ronan also has ties to the mob as well as his brother on the police force, which he uses, uh, you know, to his advantage in, in investigating uh, and things like that. So, um, yeah, basically... Ronan gets himself, uh, sort of, he gets himself, uh, kidnapped and, and, and he, he's, he's a little, uh, slow at the stack gate getting, getting out onto this investigation. Um, but he does, he, what he does know is that these, these two other girls that, uh, worked at the bar with Karen, uh, they seem to, to be, uh, tied to whatever happened to her. Uh, so he's following them around, and uh, he gets the mob involved, his uncle Sal and his cousin Tony, and they are helping him, uh, you know, get information on how to get into the escort service where he can talk to, uh, you know, more people that, that, that know about the murder. So long and the short of it is this is a really good... Uh, thrilling uh crime noir murder mystery about you know pretty much an ordinary guy who's just been called to action uh due to the horrific things that he's seen and the murder of his girlfriend um so it comes highly recommended uh lloyd coruscelli is a great writer uh and uh the artwork is is dark and gritty and it's just it's a good it's a good murder mystery. So, uh, issues one through four are currently out. And you can, uh, find them on Lloyd Coricelli's website. Um, I will post that on the blog. I don't have that information with me and I apologize. It will be on the blog, uh, in the article that follows and encompasses, uh, this podcast. Yeah, very good. Um, Next on our list, we cover the line of HB Comics. Um, us, HB Comics is, they're, they're pretty extensive. Uh, one of the great things about the guys at HB Comics is, is that they're constantly creating. It almost seems like they're always coming out with new books. Um, I believe it started out with, uh, with Laser Man and now we got almost uh, another three titles following that. Uh, that's correct. Um, after Laser Man, uh, they came out with Vindication, which is like a really great team book. Uh, then Mystery Man, which we'll talk about as well. I've had the privilege of reading Mystery Man. Um, and uh, they're coming out with another team book uh, next year. At, uh, the name escapes me at the moment. It's a, it's a group of females, uh, female superheroes, though. That much I do know. Uh, so we'll get that information for next time. That's it's not out yet, so we got a little bit of time. But yeah, um, when I picked up Laser Man uh, and 
back in one of the reviews we did uh, for Northeast Comic Con, I, I think I might have mentioned this, but um, I took a look at their, you know, basically their marquee character uh, that HB had there in, in Laser Man, and, and you know, at first appearance, you know. He doesn't look all that impressive. Yeah, I remember we were uh, we talked to them and they're like, "Yeah, Laser Man's about a comic book uh, fan at uh, ends up getting superpowers." But uh, and then it was just kind of laughable because it seems like kind of this old idea that's kind of been beaten to death. But uh, once we actually got around to uh, giving it a shot and read it, um, it was actually. Much more than that. Um, Laser Man actually has a lot of humor involved in it. It's a very lighthearted book. It kind of laughs at the situations that they're in, kind of pokes fun at uh, the comic book medium. And in the story itself, it um, it's actually done very well. Laser Man slowly finds out what his powers are and um, ends up saving I, the day. Yeah. I just like how uh, his nemesis is... Razor Man, and uh, his thing is he like throws razors at you. Yeah, and then is he, doesn't he get in this <laughs> argument about uh, a comic book character that they both know about, and they argue about like what happened and what book? Yeah, and they're in the yeah. middle of this big fight with blasting lasers and shooting razors at each other, but they're getting into this big argument about who did what, when, and where. Yeah, and uh, and it, it's actually extremely well written. Great banter, really funny, um, and the, great art too. I gotta say, um, uh, now now Laser Man was is written by Alan Hebert Jr. and the art is by Chris Hebert, his brother. Um, uh, both of them uh, write and do art for the HB books, uh, but for, for Laser Man, uh, Alan writes that one. Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, the, the dialogue's phenomenal, uh, and, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a really awesome celebration of, of the classic superhero for sure. Yeah. Uh, in, in that lighthearted, uh, witty, humorous way that they do it in. Um, I also so- love the fact that how they're, they're building on their line. They're actually building a continuity. Yeah, they're with building all these other characters. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it's kind of a grand undertaking. Even the big publishers themselves have a hard time keeping their continuity in order and having each character interacting with each other. And they're taking it on and they're doing it themselves. And I'm extremely impressed. As am I. Uh, yeah, HB Comics. And they've, they've been around for a while too. And, uh, you know, they clearly have a certain tenacity about them uh, as a whole because, you know, for, for in, independent companies and independent labels to be able to keep putting out these these issues to these books uh i mean that requires so much money and so much time uh to do that that they've actually they've been able to keep all their characters that they've created they've been able to keep them alive up until this point in you know within the realm of, of comic book panels uh it's it's pretty it's just really impressive uh and they have no sign of slowing down. Uh, so with Laser Man, uh, you get that first, the first arc, uh, this man, this laser with Razor Man. And we talked about, uh, him thwarting Razor Man and, and sort of, you know, becoming Laser Man. Uh, and the origin's cool. The origin, although, you know, it's definitely something out of like a classic Golden Age comic book. It has not been done before. Um, 
And, you know, at the end, if you, at the end of the first arc, you really start believing in Laser Man as a character, in Alex. Uh, Alex Sanders, the main character. Uh, you know, he sort of has a Peter Parker-esque kind of, uh, personality, uh, that you can kind of, it's easy to fall in love with. Uh, so highly recommend Laser Man, uh, uh, volume two, uh, is very good as well. Night of the Necro Lord, which, uh, covers issues five through seven. Uh, I was able to spin through that and, uh, you know, you got like a whole, uh, zombie apocalypse thing going on there, uh, which is different and fun. Uh, and then you get to, uh, issues eight and nine and they do an awesome crossover with a new, character uh in the hb comics universe called mystery man uh and they do a, a couple issue uh crossover here the strange tale of mystery man uh where you get to know a little bit about that character um as well as you know if you, mystery man number one came out last year uh and uh i was able to read that too now that's actually written and created by a man named ken youngquist uh, penciled, uh, and inked by Fernando Martin, uh, colors by Flatworks, uh, and then the finished colors and lettering, uh, by Chris Hebert. <clears throat> but anyways, uh, y- Mystery Man's a little bit of a different tale, uh, than Laser Man, where, cause you got Alex, uh, Sanders, who's kind of, you know, personality wise, and, you know, in regards to his F, ethics uh he's he's the perfect person to become a superhero because he's just you know he's all about doing the right thing and and doing you know helping people when they're in need because it's the right thing to do whereas um you have the character of uh of mystery man this guy peter butler um and peter butler is just you know kind of just like the token rich kid uh, his parents get a mansion, but they're not really home ever. Uh, and he kind of does whatever he wants. And, and his, his whole thing is like, okay, like I'll buy like all this stuff and like make myself a superhero. But why do we have to go on all these patrols and stuff like that looking for trouble? Like if I see trouble, then I'll obviously do something about it. But why do I have to go looking for it? You know? And, uh, you know, during that little crossover with Laser Man, he tries to kind of teach Mystery Man how how to really be a hero and and and, and what the values are that go along with that. Because um, you have this really apathetic rich kid who kind of just bought a bunch of gimmicky little gizmos and said, "Hey, you know, uh, I can do this too." But if I wanted, but I don't feel like it, like looking for it. I mean, like, you know, if the terrorists like want to come knock on my door, I guess I'll stop them, you know. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting take on a character because there's just so much apathy, uh, it, it, with Peter Butler. Um, it's almost frustrating. It's mm-hmm. like all he cares about is women and parties and Miss, uh, Laser Man cares about obviously going on patrol. Yeah. So. Another um, great thing about these different titles is that they uh the characters are very different but like the tone of each book is actually quite different too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um speaking of of different tones, uh changing the tone to the tone of a different HB title book, uh you have the title of Vindication, 
which has a much darker, much more serious tone uh, than Laser Man or Mystery Man does. Uh, that's for sure. So, um, Vindication was actually uh, created and lettered by uh, Chris Hebert. Um, Chris and Alan came up with a story, but uh, looks like Chris uh, wrote it. And then uh, pencils and inks are Rodney Jacobson. Uh, Team HB uh, did the colors. Um, David Mosser did the cover inks. The fonts were by Blambot, and, of course, it was published by HB Comics. Now, Vindication's a really cool tale uh, about uh, a superhero team-up, uh, but it's it's not the traditional superhero team-up. You look at books like the Justice League or X-Men or, well, X-Men's a, a perfect example because Vindication had a very, like, X-Men feel to it, and I was able to talk with Chris and Alan uh, at this year's Boston Con, and it turns out Chris, uh, Chris Hebert's actually a huge X-Men fan, and in fact, X-Men did have a bit of an influence, you know, as much as probably possible uh, for Vindication. Um, but you have these different characters that were, uh, they're superheroes, they're metahumans, they were hunted down by, uh, these different robots. Um, the four basic characters at the start is, are, uh, <clears throat> Speedfire, who's sort of like the punk kid of it all, and, uh, you know, always has like a wise comment. And he's a speedster, but he can also manipulate fire, which is pretty cool. Because it's kind of like if you think of, like, imagine if the Flash had all of his speedster qualities. But then, oh, you know, he can also manipulate fire, too. So that's pretty neat. Um, then you have Pitch Shift, uh, who's kind of like this muscly uh, black guy. Um, and he can manipulate sound waves. So that's pretty cool. Um, then you have Imogen, who's like the... like sexy blonde girl who uh, can manipulate light energy. And then Surge, who's my favorite. Surge is just so badass. He's kind of, he kind of has like a Wolverine demeanor to him. Uh, his superpower, he basically can uh, absorb and then project any type of energy. Uh, which is kind of like Bishop's power in the X-Men. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the X-Men. Uh, which I always thought was a really cool power set, actually, because it's like you blast me with something like a, you know, I don't know, uh, a photon cannon. Well, I'm going to just absorb all that and use it as energy against you. It's like whatever you say bounces off me and hits you. Uh, <laughs> Take uh. that. Uh, yeah, I've always liked that power set, though. Uh, but basically, um, so these four are in captivity, and they're hooked up to these, like, metal mechanical arm thingies and uh they 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 were able to break out of that because of uh, uh Surge's ability to absorb energy he absorbed all the energy in the mechanical shackles and blew it apart so they could all get free uh they meet this gigantic massive hulking character at the door on the way out uh who, you know, at the end of issue one you think is threatening, but it's in fact uh, this character named Barrier who ends up being the fifth member of the team. He's in captivity as well, so they break him out, and then, you know, at that point alarms get set off, and 
the robots, and I, I sort of equate the robots to like almost like sentinels, except they're like smaller drone-like things. Uh, but like still like this in the same type of way, whereas, uh, you have sentinels chasing mutants, you have these robots hunting down metahumans for whatever reason. Well, eventually they kick all the robots' asses, except, uh, Pitch Shift dies, but apparently everyone's just kind of cool with that. I don't know, I don't know why. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, they decide to go back in the building. Uh, because they realize that they want to confront their captor head on. This guy, uh, Omega Virus, uh, he, he's got this big metal mask and a big red cape and, I don't know, he was a pretty cool villain. I, I was digging it. Uh, they end up putting a stop to him. That's actually where Pitch Shift dies. He doesn't die in the robot attack before that. He dies when they go back into the building. Uh, so pardon me on that one. Uh, but then, you know, uh, the story's been progressing. You know, they're, they're able to keep going with these, uh, with these characters and build their continuity. And they're really building it now because you got a new arc called Frenzy. First issue of that just came out or came out a little while ago. And, uh, Surge has left and kind of gone and done his own thing where he's hunting down this other vigilante from his past that's made it back to town. Uh, and then the other remaining members of Vindication, Barrier, Imogen, and, uh, Speedfire go to confront, like, the real, like, meat and potatoes of what's going on downtown where you have these, uh, metahumans that were actually created by the government. Uh, now, there's a secret government, uh, detainment facility, much like a Bell Rev, if you f- follow DC Comics. Uh, where like dangerous metahumans are kept except, uh, there's been a breakout and, uh, they're climbing their way out onto the, the surface. Basically, they're climbing their way out from underground. Uh, and the first metahuman, uh, whose name hasn't been disclosed yet has made its way to the road and, uh, Vindication has arrived on scene to stop him and that's where they've left off, but you know that you can just you can just see them building their continuity, and it, I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. It's just really cool, really awesome stuff. And I think nowadays it, with indie comics, it's so hard to develop you know a, a good superhero comic like that and have it really take off when you have the mainstream stuff pretty much covering everything. You know, like you know if if you want. Uh, a good team book, you know, you read X-Men or you want a good superhero book, you read Superman and it's hard. But, uh, these guys at HB Comics, the Hebert brothers, uh, they've, they've managed to take their characters, build a strong continuity and intertwining continuity where you have the characters showing up in other books and interacting. Uh, and it's just really cool to see and it's quite an accomplishment. Uh, for, you know, an independent label to do. So, kudos to HB. Uh, we will certainly be, uh, watching and tracking your progress from here on out. That's for sure. Yeah. That was a fantastic explanation. We can't wait for their next, uh, next issue. Absolutely. And, uh, let's see, moving right along. Um, now imagine, uh, a man. Imagine a man hanging out with his girlfriend. He's taking a beer out of the plastic rings. They're arguing. 
He doesn't care. He just wants to drink his beer. He throws the plastic ring down on the ground as if littering. And then seconds later, he's brutally attacked. And then his arms are somehow torn from his body. And then you see a scene, and it's a seagull. And the seagull has somehow put his little feet inside the arms and now has control over the arms. (laughs) This is the premise of... This is the premise of Rain Miller's Mangull. So, other than the gruesome uh, scene that I've just explained to you, which is uh, how the first book begins, he's got two books out right now. Um, Mangull, it's um, both written and illustrated by Rain Miller. Uh, the, the tone of the book is actually not so much... It's kind of like uh, comedic horror. Um... Interesting combo. It, um, it, it adds the hilariousness of a seagull doing brutal murders upon people because it's got human <laughs> arms instead of oh, little seagull legs. And he can fully manipulate them. He can flip people off. He can punch people. He can strangle people. <laughs> uh, there's a one point in the book where the seagull actually ends up firing on uh, our main character, Detective Nick Obex. And uh, it's actually kind of a... Lighthearted tale. It kind of first starts off. Nick's trying to figure out this thing because they find the man and his body. And he's barely alive. He's lost a lot of blood. He talks to the coroner. Well, not the coroner. The doctor. And they're so busy trying to take care of the wounds that they don't know what what, is, what, what caused it. And it turns out it was actually torn up by the seagull, which I guess it was mad that he was littering. <laughs> and the, the girlfriend's all distraught. She uh, somehow ended up getting distracted, hurt over the head, I forget, something like that. But she didn't notice who had done it, and she's freaking out about it. And then uh, the end of the first book, that's when you get your first confrontation. Uh, The cop goes in to check up on on the victim, and uh, the cop who was waiting outside the door is is dead. And he goes to check in, and the seagull's in there trying to kill the guy. (laughs) So then they end up getting into a brawl with the seagull, and then the seagull ends up getting his hands on the other cop's gun, and they end up getting into a shootout. And then I guess the guy, uh, he ends up fighting the seagull, and the seagull gets, and he takes off through the window, just flies away. So then you have this hilarious scene where he, the detective has, ends up lying to his own precinct about what happened. Because he's not about to tell them that a seagull, who had somehow managed to get human arms attached to his legs, managed to sneak into the room, try to kill the victim that he tore the arms off of in the first place, and somehow killed uh, another cop. So he goes and he tells them this this, uh, crazy tale about a guy in a black mask wearing all black, black gloves, comes in, he goes in, and he jumps out the window, and the guy escaped. And they're like, oh, my God, Nick, blah, 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 blah. So he ends up uh, getting in contact with his ex, Nick does, and he's trying to get her to look at these these photos, but it's partially, like, him trying to, like, get in contact with her because she didn't want to talk to him. They had, like, a messy breakup. And... And they end up getting in a meeting together, and he's like, "Well, I want to see if you take a look at these photos and see if you can tell what did these what made these wounds, you know." So he goes in, and like all he has is like pictures on his like flip phone, and then he ends up getting called to another scene of a crime. So in the first two books, there's a lot of character development, not a lot of 
like man versus seagull action. But towards the end of the second book, the seagull, the door opens to the police precinct and the guy the, at the main desk is like, huh, what's going on? He's not looking at the camera because then he'd see the seagull walking on, on, on people hands. <laughs> and, and it goes in and then like the last page they pan in on the seagull, like the seagull's about to do like some craziness. And, and that's where it leaves off. Um, it's a hilarious concept. If you're interested in this, go to www.man-slash-gull.com. I, I, can I just say that I hate seagulls, by the way? Oh, yeah. Everywhere. They're mean, nasty, dirty yeah. little birds. Yeah, they're rats with wings. If you live anywhere here in New England, like if you go to the beach and then... You're like, oh, I'm going to throw them a French fry. Well, now you got a flock of seagulls, and they're getting brazen, and they're getting closer to you. Oh, yeah, and uh, they're sending in reinforcements, too, because now they know where they can get food. Yeah, oh, seagulls, I mean, I I remember one time, now this is totally off topic, but uh, after this we'll we'll plug the, uh, the studio, take a quick break. But I just remember this one time. You got these, uh, these damn seagulls everywhere on the beach and, and I look over and this little girl had made this intricate sandcastle and, uh, there had all these little dolls or, uh, the different turrets that, you know, sitting on top of the sandcastle and these seagulls sw- they swooped down thinking that it was food or something and they picked up the little dolls and flew away with them and the girl started crying <laughs> and then the seagull, you could see them like, like they must have realized that it wasn't food cause maybe like, you know, 50 yards down down the beach, you see them drop, start dropping the dolls. And it's like, what a bunch of jerks. That poor girl is just having fun on the beach. And, and, and that's why they make great villains and great comic book characters, because seagulls are such bastards. That's, that's, I couldn't agree more. That's... <laughs> and uh, that's my little uh, rant on seagulls. Every once in a while, we're going to find something that I just have to go on a tangent about, and that's one of them. But uh, anyways... Um, if I could uh, bring my attention, bring bring your attention, bleh. you bring your attention to me. I got the mic. But anyways, uh, calling all aspiring podcasters out there, if you could bring your attention to this. Um, if you're looking to do your own podcast, uh, I would highly recommend contacting a man named Nathan Burke down at Hotcast Studios in Beverly, Mass. Uh, Nathan Burke is the owner and operator of Hotcast, Hotcast Studios, and you can reach him at his website, which is hotcaststudio.com. You can reach him by email at nburke18 at gmail.com. Um, you can reach him on Twitter at I am Nathan Burke, right? Uh, and basically, uh, he'll hook you up with, uh, state of the art equipment and get you going on your first podcast. Uh, he's a great guy. He knows the ins and the outs. So contact Nathan. And with that, we'll take a quick break. All right. We're back from our break. Does everyone feel refreshed? I know I do. We, we do. There's, uh, there's going to be some illusion of time. It's like we never left. Ha ha! Nah, are we done with bad jokes? Or are we 
Or are we going to do more bad jokes, but we're just going to do them later on in the podcast while we actually talk about stuff? Oh, well, you know, let's just let's see how things go. I'm not a fortune teller. I don't have my crystal ball right in front of me at the moment. But uh, I do remember talking about some exciting independent publications with you, Mr. Orm. That's um, true. And I think that there were a few more you wanted to go over as well as I uh, before we conclude. So um, before we conclude... Uh, why don't you take it away with, uh, the next title you wanted to discuss here? Alright. The next title I want to discuss is Calamitous Black Devils. Ooh, or that's the a good Calamitous one. Black Devils. Uh, it was written and illustrated by, uh, Joseph Schmalky. Um, yeah. And, uh, local creator. Uh, when I first picked this book up, it was, uh, it was very thick. I looked at the art. Uh, the art was amazing. Uh, there was a lot of coloring involved. Uh, this is um, more of a horror-toned book with uh, with some sci-fi fantasy aspects to it. Um, the premise of the story is it's in World War II. The Nazis, of course, are trying to redo research involving the occult. And they're going ahead and... They're doing, they're researching all their black masses and dark spells and sacrifice rituals. And they go ahead and they find a way to go ahead and summon this, um, evil god from another dimension. And, the you know, ally- why can't the gods from other dimensions, like, be nice for once? Like, why do they always have to be evil gods from other dimensions? I don't know. I thought it was a nice one. Then, and they made everything better, and there was flowers and tulips and ice cream mountains, and everybody lived happily ever after. Well, then it'd be a very short story. But, uh, I mean, then you can get on to other things, and, you know, you're done reading nice and quick. and Yeah, you're just you're focusing more on your pog collection, and, uh, <laughs> and you, you go ahead, and you, you're cleaning your cat's litter box. You're talking about different types of litter. You just switched from one to another. You don't need to really <laughs> worry about the Nazis anymore. Somehow they've had a change of heart. These are none of these things happened in this book, by the way. <laughs> Just uh, getting you off on a tangent. Anyways, continue. Yes. Um, so, in the book, the Allies, in their response, they go ahead and they uh, get together a special crack team of uh, people to go ahead and fight people and um, and battle paranormal activities, and they leave their um, these these calling cards on every Nazi they kill. And so the Nazis, they take this Polish guy who turns out to be a medium and he can speak to the dead. They need him for this ritual to bring the god through the other side. And then the black devils go ahead and they attack the Nazis during a ritual. And they got a guy on the inside. And they go and they stop the ritual. But then everyone gets sucked into the portal. And then all of a sudden they're on the other side in another dimension. And the rest of the story takes place with uh, they're trying to find a way to help this resistance on the other side of the portal fight these evil gods and they go through that and uh the the, the tone of the books are very dark um, oh yeah uh, very dark Joseph uh, Joseph Schmalk is a and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly either I'm just going on speculation but uh he's he's a very famous uh horror writer in the area uh I actually, I've read a few of his things, uh, in the past, and, uh, all of his stuff's pretty dark. It's, uh, gritty, sometimes just really disturbing. Uh, you, you know, it's great, though, 
you sort of know that you're an awesome writer or an awesome creator when you can exhibit, you know, those emotions, get those emotions out of your readers. You know, it's, uh, it's an indication that what you're writing is, is, is provoking the emotion and, and, you know, he does it really well for what he writes. So anyways, uh, sorry to interrupt there, but no, um, all very relevant to, uh, to the story. So, um, the, the graphic novel itself is uh, fairly thick. Um, they go and they come to a conclusion. It comes to a big head. Everyone's getting into this big battle. Um, all the people who are there find that different aspects of themselves have changed. They've become more extreme. Uh, the spells and stuff they researched before, they realize that they're able to cast these things now. Um, and they go ahead and they finally ended up facing off against this, uh, evil god and then they, uh, they use the medium, they use this artifact called the Atomic Heart to go ahead and he uses that to steal the god's powers and he becomes the new god. Uh, there's like two of them, they're both sisters and then there's this tie-in story that has to do with the past but he becomes the new god and then his priorities change and he tells everyone to go back to where they came from and he's not fighting anymore and he's just tired of it. And, uh, so they go back and then, uh, it sums it up with the, the leader of the, um, the, the Black Devils ends up being recruited to this, uh, secret organization where they deal with, uh, this paranormal stuff and it turns out they still have a, a gate to that same world, um, that they've cordoned off and, uh, it really leaves it open to uh, more issues and expanding on the story, which uh, I, know, I mean, it was really well done. I don't want to give away too much stuff just because you really should just pick up the book and read it yourself. You, you really should, you know, in all cases. I mean, we give you a little taste, but you should really always pick up the book and read it yourself. Because there's just nothing, there's no better uh, sensation in life than uh, the feeling of, of a crisp new publication in your hands of something that that's just gonna make your mind travel to distant places and and that is exactly uh what the work of joseph schmalk among all the other creators we've discussed today uh do uh in their publications yeah um if you're looking for uh joseph or any of his work uh he's affiliated with broken icon comics uh, I never got an actual web address in the book, but I imagine there's a brokeniconcomics.com out there somewhere. Uh, there is, yep. So go ahead and uh, check it out. And uh, Check it out. Whoop, whoop. Whoa, 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 what's it all about? It's about comic books, yo. So this brings us, uh, you know, to the last couple of, uh, publications that we want to discuss with you. Uh, Holden has recently read a very interesting title, uh, from the Red Anvil comic line entitled The Mighty Titan. And there's a very, very interesting backstory that goes along with that. And I know he can't wait to tell us all about it. And this is the part where I do. <laughs> the Mighty Titan, um, the story is really well done. Uh, the art's top-notch. Um, not only is the art itself fantastic, but the, co- the coloring work is actually really good. And the whole premise is, is uh, there's this guy. He was a um, forensics um, officer for the uh, Chicago PD. And 
his uh in the past his buddy went ahead and invited him to go on this crazy spelunking trip on this island in the middle of nowhere. So they go into the island, they're in this cave, he kinda gets stuck and he finds this box with old Greek writing on it. So he brings it back and he's cleaning it off and he he looks at the writing and somehow he's able to read it even though it's in ancient Greek or something, it just like, I don't know. I think it's a magic thing. And he goes and he's like, anyone who may be in need, go ahead and read this. And what had happened was the, the Greek gods, when they overthrown the Titans, uh, the, one of the Titans, uh, Helios, the Titan of the Sun, allowed the Greek gods to take his essence and allow it to be used so that a man could have his powers. So... Where is it? Hyperion. Yeah, it's Hyperion. So he goes, and every time the guy says Hyperion, he turns into the mighty Titan. He gets these Titan powers. Um, so going through life, he's kind of, it's kind of a drag. His wife's, uh, like, he's got a teenage daughter who's real difficult to deal with. He's got his son, and then his wife is working at a diner to try to meet ends meet. He's just spending every day looking for work. Um... But there's this guy who keeps using his robots to attack the city, and while he's, like, looking for jobs, he turns into the Titan, and he goes and he defeats the robots. Well, uh, one night he goes out to hang out with his buddies at the bar, and they buy him a couple beers, and it's nothing too crazy, and then it turns out that he passes out. Well, he goes to the doctor and gets it, he, uh, well, actually he finds, wakes up in the ER, and they're like, well, what's your name? And he's like, oh, well, uh, this is my first name. He doesn't give him the whole name. And then he gets out of there real quick. Cause he, I don't know what happened. Well, he goes to his normal doctor. He gets checked out. Turns out the guy's got cancer. And it's, it's this strange, um, very interesting dynamic where you have a man who's dealing with real-life issues but is also a superhero. And... It kind of deals with, like, what if you had this invincible hero, but somehow he also had, like, this really advanced form of cancer. Wow. And, what a premise. And uh, it was it was done extremely well. Um, now, who who wrote that, uh, The Mighty Titan? Uh, Joe Martino. With pen- Joe Martino, yeah. With pencils by uh, Luca Chichidi. And inks by Jeff Austin at redanvilcomics.com. Now, Joe, Joe Martino, uh, he wrote this, uh, story, uh, sort of based on his own life experiences fighting cancer himself. Yeah. Which is uh, even, even cooler, uh, when, when you, when you can, you know, put that up there, uh, you know, with the premise that he already has, but then say, "Hey, you know, this is based off of uh, the creator's real experiences." In other words, in other words, he's writing about something he has experienced in real life. He has suffered and gone through it, so it's going to make the character that much more realistic, I'd imagine. Although I have not read this publication yet, I do plan on it, and uh, I just got to say, it's just uh, it's it's inspiring uh, for somebody to go through something like that and then create something as positive as this publication along with it. Uh, and it, 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 like I said, it, uh, makes for a really, 
uh, realistic uh, protagonist that a reader can certainly fall in love with uh, very easily. So, uh, yep. But um, I mean, it takes its stages. It's uh, at first he's having issues because he's getting the chemo, but he needs to take the radiation too. But every time he goes to get the radiation treatment, he ends up turning into the mighty Titan. So then he tries flying right next to the sun to see if that radiation will do anything about the cancer. And then it doesn't, and then, and then his arch nemesis, the guy who's been making all the robots, has all of them attack the city, cause he goes to him in weakness and asks the doctor, the mad scientist, if he can help him cure his cancer, and he's like, no! Then they're like, go ahead and try to defeat me here, all my robots here will kill everyone living in the apartment building above me. And, he lets him go, and lets him off, and then he ends up using them to attack the city, and then after that he, he goes to the island to question the Cyclops, who was supposedly supposed to be guarding the box in the first place. And he gets into a fight with him, and he had gotten into a fight earlier with the Cyclops, earlier when he had first found out he had the ability to turn into the Titan. And the Cyclops kind of kicked his ass, but now he's got more experience, and he ends up killing the Cyclops. But, like, he just does it in a rage because he's so frustrated with everything that's going on. So then there's a bunch of other Cyclopses, I guess, and they go and they meet up at the city while the robots are all attacking at the same time, and he's feeling so weak from the cancer, it's still affecting him as, as, um, Hyperion, and he, he, um, he ends up having to make a choice, and I think he ends up giving, like, the box and the oath to the chief of police who was his buddy who had to lay him off. It was the same guy who went to the island before, so that... But the power's gone, he'd be able to get the treatment he needs, and then the city would still be able to have their protector. And it's still left, uh, it's still an open idea. We, I do not know what happens to the main character, however, it, uh, it, it's a fantastic premise, and I really hope that they continue to build on what they already have. Oh, I as well. I can't wait to dive into that one. Uh, sounds like really, uh, gripping story writing there, Holden, and, uh, uh, definitely looking forward to uh, hopefully seeing more of the Mighty Titan in future story arcs as well. So um, I suppose uh, one last uh, independent comic book entity that is without a doubt worth mentioning. Uh, they certainly had uh, a table at this year's Boston Comic Con. They're... Uh, uh, the people that pretty much run uh, mice every year, the Massachusetts Independent Comic Exposition. Um, and they uh, come out with a lot of uh, different publications throughout the year. Uh, Boston Comic Book Roundtable. Uh, now, they're sort of uh, an organization of indie creators uh, that meet and work together on a lot of different anthologies, some of, some of which I've covered in previous uh, articles on the blog. Uh, one of their most popular uh, anthologies is their horror anthology, Hellbound, uh, which I highly recommend, especially uh, volumes one through three. Uh, very good stuff. Uh, short uh, horror stories, and it's interesting to see uh, different uh, local creators and uh, how they take different... Uh, horror scenarios and some of them end up uh being more lighthearted and others uh just as gruesome as 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 anything or dark as anything that you'd find in uh you know a typical horror graphic novel so um also uh another anthology that the Boston Comics Roundtable puts out 
uh, is a sci-fi anthology that they do very well uh, called Outbound. And uh, I've read the first two volumes of Outbound, and they are phenomenal. And uh, unlike Hellbound, Outbound has a, a continuity to it. So you want to start with volume one, and you want to follow these stories as they go through the different uh, volumes of the anthology. Uh, very exciting stories. Uh, the Karulian dream about uh, these aliens that travel uh, to colonize on a, in a different galaxy is a particular one that I enjoyed. The Black Fusca as well, uh, about a, a car that uh, can go into different dimensions. Uh, the Null Device, uh, speaking of different de- uh, dimensions, the Null Device by uh, David Marshall uh is big on interdimensional travel and the artwork is incredible. Uh, uh, once again, Rojo, uh, did an amazing job on the Karulian dream and black Fusca. Um, and you can, uh, find any of the Boston comics round table, uh, publications, uh, on their website, bostoncomicsroundtable.com. Um, and I think with that, uh, this concludes another episode of the Vigilant Geek Podcast. Um, I just want to shout out to any of you independent uh, local creators out there, writers or artists. Uh, if you have a, a, a book out there that you want us to look at and you want exposure, we, we might have missed you at Comic-Con. Uh, it, it was a big con this year, and I guarantee we missed some quality stuff. We did our best. But feel free to email us at thevigilantgeek, all lowercase, thevigilantgeek, at gmail.com. Give us a link. Let us us know a little bit about uh, your uh, publication or whatever you have uh, that you want to get some exposure towards. And we'd be happy to accommodate you. That is what we do here at The Vigilant Geek. So, um... With all that being said, uh, this concludes the podcast for this week. Join us next week for uh, a fun uh, movie uh, episode where we count down some of our favorite uh, science fiction, action, horror, and comedy movies, as well as, of course, comic book movies, because it wouldn't be the Vigilant Geek if we didn't talk about those a little. No, no, it wouldn't. So uh, with that, uh, my name is Andrew Puzak of Vigilant Geek Media, and with me as always... Holden Orm of Vigilant Geek Media. And as always... Stay Vigilant!